you weren't with us this last week, we um, started a new series called Then Sings My Soul. And what we're doing is taking some time to look at some of the deep theological truths that are found in some of the old hymns. Now, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the message because the point of this series is not to downgrade the new songs that we sing. As a matter of fact, I talked about that last week. God tells us there's a time to sing a new song unto the Lord. However, it shouldn't be at the expense of, of pushing out the old songs that are full of deep theological truths because music today and the music in our hymn book aren't written the same. They're not even, they're for the same purposes for in praise, but a lot of the music today is more about worshiping God and what Jesus would say in spirit. Uh, very passionate, very one-on-one, -on -one, uh, very much, I love you, Lord, I lift my voice type. It's very passionate for the heart. And that is absolutely true. It's absolutely needed in the lives of believers and the church. Whereas most of the hymns are written uh, about singing about who God is. And they contain deep theological truths, and we shouldn't ever forget these truths. They're biblical, they're needed, and we need to comprehend them. And so that's kind of been the emphasis point. Again, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back uh, and listen to that, that uh, sermon from last week so you'll know that this purpose is not to, um, to push out the new and say all we need to do is exalt the old. It's actually that we know that we need both. Jesus said two things about worship. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the music that we sing, the songs that we sing, need to be filled with truth about God, about who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. This morning, we're going to start off by looking uh, at the first song that we're going to look at, by looking at a song that has become known as, or was known, as a battle cry. Now, a battle cry is simply a, a yell or a chant or a song or, or something, maybe the beating of instruments, something uh, that is usually by, done by members of the same uh, group in order to invoke patriotic or religious sentiment. It, it is a battle cry is, is getting re people ready for, for battle. It is uniting them for under one cause or one theme. Uh, and, and this particular song that we're going to look at was known as the battle cry of the Reformation. And we're going to talk about that as we go. But we've seen battle cries, and we should know a little bit about them. If you know anything about history, after the Battle of the Alamo in Texas, there was a battle cry that was said before every battle following that, and it was, remember the Alamo. That's what the Texas Army would say before they marched into battle. Okay, so there's that. Um, there's in the U.S. Army today, one of their main battle cries is um, hoorah. Okay, in the Marine Corps, it's oorah. Don't ask me the difference. I have no idea. Okay, but they're different and they're battle cries. And so um, schools today have a battle cry. It's their fight song. That's why it's called the fight song. It is to be played for a school to get them going in one direction, getting them ready to go out and compete or do whatever they're going to do. And it brings people into a common thought or into a common idea to unite together for one 
purpose. Okay, so that's what a battle cry is. And this particular hymn that we're going to look at is known as the battle cry of the Reformation. And so it is based off of Psalm chapter 46. And we're going to read that in a moment. And then we're going to talk about two things about this hymn. The first is we're going to look at its history and its origin. And then we're going to look at the theological truths that are contained within them. So if you have your Bibles in Psalm 46, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning in Psalm chapter 46. <clears throat> the word of God says in Psalm chapter 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be moved or removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though its mountains shake with its swelling, Salah. How many of y'all's translations have the word Salah in there? Now, that's a lost, you got to remember, Psalms are music. They were written, most of them were written for a choir director or a music director. Um, that word salah means to pause and think. And so a lot of times in Psalms, when we read that, we just, we may even skip the word. But that word literally means to pause and think, to ponder. So let's read that again and ponder it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he gives some things that might happen. And, and so that's the emphasis of this hymn, and that's where it comes from. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for what it says. And I pray today that as we, we ponder your word through scripture and the words that have been penned by in this hymn, that you would use them to unite our hearts in one direction but you would also use them to teach us important truths about you, about what you've done for us, about who we are, and, Father, what we have because of your work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive the glory and the honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, this hymn is found in hymn number eight, and we're going to read it in just a little while. But before we get to that, I kind of want to give you, and we're going to do this with about every hymn we look at. We're going to look at its origin and its history, because every hymn that's in our hymn book has a story to it. There is a reason why it was written. It was written for a purpose, and this particular one was written uh, for a purpose. On October the 31st of the year 1517, the most probably the biggest event in the history of the church that has led to what we know as modern day church, okay, happened on October the 31st, not 34th, 31st of 1517. On that day, which was, by the way, about 500 years ago, almost to the day, okay, and so on that day, a man named Martin Luther. He presented and nailed what is known as the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this 95 Thesis basically was a list of questions and propositions against the Catholic Church and some of the things they had been teaching. Now, the, the whole premise of this primarily focused on two thoughts. 
The, and Well, one challenge and one proposition. It had two things to go with it in these 95 theses. The first one was a challenge of what the Catholic Church called indulgences. Now, an indulgence in the Catholic Church is a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. In the Catholic Church, if you and I, when we die, they believe in a place called purgatory, and you go to a place called purgatory where you work off your sin debt, okay? Now, an indulgence was a way for you to prepay that penalty. You could prepay. Now, in, in early Catholic Church, and we start seeing this, by the way, it didn't, by the way, this is not something that Jesus instituted or Peter. Indulgence didn't show up for about five or six hundred years post Christ, okay? But when they started, they always had a work tied to it, okay? And so you either had to, to pray a certain amount of times, you had to serve, you had to do something in service. Uh, you had something uh, that you had to give, if you would. There was um, maybe a, a duty that you had to fulfill. But, but by the time of the year 1517, the Catholic Church had begun to sell indulgences. You see, they were trying to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome to re redo it, which is a beautiful facility. But they were running out of money, and the way, one of the ways they used to gain their money was to begin to sell indulgences. So you could go to a Catholic priest, and you could purchase with alms, with money, an indulgence. And what you were doing was literally buying your way out of purgatory. Now, Martin Luther was raised Catholic. And he was about to go into the priesthood and instead went into a monastery where he began to study the Word of God. And when he did that on his own, he began to see that not only is purgatory not a biblical thing, but indulgences, the idea of buying your way out of penalty, definitely wasn't biblical. As you and I know from Scripture, there's only one payment that can ever be paid for our penalty that we owe, and that's the penalty payment that Jesus made on the cross. And that's what Martin Luther began to see. So he began to challenge this idea of buying and purchasing indulgences. He basically told them, you're selling salvation, and salvation's not for sale. You can't buy salvation. You can only receive salvation by grace, through faith, in what Jesus has already done. So its primary challenge, there were others, but its primary one was the sale of indulgences. And by the way, this was also the way that the, the, the Pope got his soldiers for the Crusades. You see, when the Pope of the Catholic Church decided that we as Christians needed the Holy Land to return back to us, we sent soldiers down in a crusade, and the way that he gained his soldiers was by telling them, if you will go and fight in the crusade, your punishment in purgatory will be paid in full. And if you die, you do not spend time there. You'll go straight into eternal bliss in heaven. And, and so Martin Luther, he challenged that. Okay. The second thing, though, was not only a challenge, but he, he had a proposition. 
And his proposition is known as the five solas, and it, it, it focuses on five things. The first one is called sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. It's the idea that the Bible alone is our highest authority. If you know anything about Catholicism, you know the Bible is an authority in the Catholic Church, but so is the Pope. And so are the founding church fathers. And so are um, the, the uh, church history and what the church has done over the years. They're all considered authoritative in the Catholic church. And he challenged that. He said, no, our only authority is Scripture, not a man and not what man says, but what Scripture alone says. His second one is called sola fide, and it means by faith alone. And it's the idea that we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the Bible says? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not by works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift of God. And so he focused on that. He, his third one was called sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Okay, which is the idea that we are saved by the grace of God. If it wasn't for God's grace, you and I wouldn't be saved. And that's not what Scripture teaches us. Yes. Number four is called solus Christus, and it means by Christ alone. And it focuses primarily on the idea that it is only through Jesus Christ that you and I have salvation. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You, can't, you don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to make it there for you. You can only focus on what Jesus did. He purchased salvation by Christ alone. And his, the last point is called sole de gloria, and it, is by, it is, means to the glory of God alone. It's the idea that we live for the glory of God. Of God, And you could sum it up in this statement. This is the way it's summed up most often today. And that is that salvation is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the way it's formed. Now, that event, the nailing of the 95 Thesis, the challenge of indulgences, and this one proposition known as the five solas, led to Luther being excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and his writings were banned, and you could no longer read his writings. And, it's led, and that event led to what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And it is when the church went, moved from a, pretty much just Catholicism into a Protestant Reformation that led to believers being back in the Word of God themselves, no longer just listening to what some preacher was telling them, but they were listening to what the Word of God told them, and they began to establish truths from God's Word that had long been either ignored or forgotten or unknown from Scripture, and they began to establish those in the hearts and lives of people and plant churches to preach these things. As a Baptist, we can draw our roots back to the Protestant Reformation. If it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation, the church as we know it today would not exist. Okay? And so this was a major emphasis in the life of the church. It's a major emphasis in the history of the church. But the thing that gets forgotten about this, and you're like, what's this have to do with music? And it is not only did Martin Luther want to reform the way the church functioned and the way the church believed in, in Scripture, he wanted to reform and restore worship in the church. Martin Luther was a skilled musician. And before he chose to go into the monastery, he had been 
trained musically to sing in the choir. If you weren't here last week, you, if you were here, you'll remember this. If you weren't here, uh, we learned the, the different stages of worship music in the life of the church. Martin Luther grew up in the stage known as the choir stage. It is where worship in the church was only done by the choir. The music, there was no congregational worship. They enjoyed worship. They listened to worship, but they didn't use their own voices and praise God in worship. So he was very well trained. He was highly educated in music, and he looked in the Word of God, and he mainly looked at the verse we looked at last week in Ephesians that tells us that we should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, rejoicing in our heart to the Lord, and he began to want to restore worship, congregational worship, back into the lives of the church. And so what he began to do is he, being a skilled musician, would take his teachings and the scriptures that he was getting them from, and he worked with other skilled musicians, and they began to take all of that theology and all that doctrine, and they began to put it into song for the congregations to begin to sing so they could learn for the purpose of worshiping God, but also for the purpose of learning theology that they didn't know before. And that's how the Reformation spread. You see, to be a reformer meant banishment, and a banishment from the Catholic Church also meant punishment by the government of the day. And so there weren't a lot of Reformation preachers, but what these preachers would do is they would work with musicians, they would put their messages into song, and then the people would go around and learn these songs, and they would begin to sing them from community to community to community. And this Reformation movement began to grow, and there became a reestablishment of what God's Word says about faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, and so he began to do this. And the most famous hymn that Martin Luther ever wrote was this hymn right here, hymn number eight. A mighty fortress is our God. Or he wrote it in German. You could say, Ein Festberg ist er Unstergott, if you want to say it that way. That the only word I know is Gott. That means God in German. I know that. I don't know the rest. And because it's written in German, there are a lot of English variations. But the most common one is the one that we find in our hymnal in hymn number eight. And it is filled with some deep theological truths that become the battle cry of the Reformation. And this is what we're going to focus on for our remaining time this morning. And that is the theological emphasis of hymn number eight. And you can break these theological truths down into four principles. There's four verses, and each verse is a celebration of some scriptural theological emphasis points. The first one, in verse 1, it's a celebration of God's sovereign power. Let's look at verse 1 from your hymnal, hymn number 8, and I'll read it, and you kind of follow along. Listen to what it says. A mighty fortress is our God... A bulwark never failing. Now, how many of you know what a bulwark is? A bulwark is, and it makes sense when you read the rest of the song or the rest of this verse, a bulwark was on the ships of the day. It was the sidewalls that come up on the sides of the ship that kept the waves from coming in to the boat where you are. That's what a bulwark is. Now, now take that and listen to the rest of it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood. The bulwark is there to keep the flood out. 
of mortal ills prevailing. The idea right there of mortal ills, and, and I'm going to sum it up in a minute. But Martin Luther penned this hymn when the plague was prominent. And so the, the idea of mortal ills was the, the sickness of the day that was just running rampant through that area of the world that was killing many, many people. And then he says this, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel and hate on earth is not his equal. And so this idea in verse 1 is the idea of God's sovereign power. It recognizes God's power over all the earthly and spiritual forces. It brings people to recognize that there is an ancient foe. That's the word. There's an ancient foe. That's Satan. And that Satan is alive and well and wanting to destroy the lives of people. That is what the Word of God tells us. Does it not say in the book of Peter that the, the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for whom he may devour? Jesus said that the Satan is, uh, uh, came to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so this song brought the reader to understand that there is an ancient foe named Satan who is going to throw things. He is going to bring turmoil on the lives of the followers of God. That's what Jesus said was going to happen. You be assured of this. In this world, you will have trouble. Amen? So as a believer, he's bringing, to, as a singer, these people were learning that there's an ancient foe that is actively at work in, in our lives that is seeking to destroy our lives. And there's, there's great mortal ills that he uses. There's great power that he has. As a matter of fact, I want you to focus on that. Listen to what he says, the very last statement. On earth is not his equal. He's not talking about God. He's talking about Satan. He's basically saying that on our own, we are not capable of standing up to Satan. On our own. On earth is not his equal. So he's reminding them of this. But in the meantime, he is also, if you'll remember what he said, that God is our helper amidst the flood that Satan brings. And he starts it off with the same words of Psalm 46.1. A mighty fortress is our God. Now, and then he calls him a bulwark that's never failing. Now, in that day, in Martin Luther's day, a mighty fortress and a bulwark was the equivalent of things that were considered impenetrable. You couldn't overtake a mighty fortress. And waters could not get in over a bulwark. That's what they were for. And so he's reminding the reader that even though there's an ancient foe that is actively, consistently throwing mortal ills at the people of, in the children of God, that they have a helper that is a mighty fortress and a bulwark that will keep them safe from what Satan is thrown at them. No matter how powerful our foe is or what storm Satan brings into the life of the believer, he, Satan, cannot overcome God's protection and help. 
Now listen to where the Bible kind of talks about this and sums it up. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 12. Listen to what the writer of 1 Chronicles says in, in chapter 29, verse 11 and 12. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. You and I, on our own, in our own power, are not strong enough to withstand Satan's attack on our lives. But as a believer, we have a helper in the midst of of those trials and that helper is God who has all sovereign power he is in complete control of everything and this verse teaches the singer to celebrate and to focus on God's supreme power in the world the second emphasis point is in verse 2 and it is a celebration not of God's supreme power but it's a celebration of victory. Look at it, verse 2. It says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. And so he's kind of reiterating what he just said, that if we focus on our own strength, we're lose. we lose. That's what he says. So, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing, were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And so verse 2 is bringing the singers to celebrate the victory that's found in Jesus. Now, one of the, I, I probably, just to let you know, I will probably do a sermon on victory in Jesus. I don't know how I do a hymn series and not do a hymn on victory in Jesus, but we get it in the very first one, in the second verse. God's ultimately sovereign, and he helps us, but he does it through Jesus. Jesus is who brings the victory. And this verse acknowledges our temptation and we do. We fight this. It acknowledges our temptation to live and fight in this battle of life, our struggle in our own strength. Do we not do that? Don't we sometimes, when we're under attack, don't we sometimes try to stand up to it ourselves? Don't we sometimes try to, I can figure this out. I, I don't need help. I can do this. I can stand this. I can... Bear this. I can do that. I want you to know there's going to be times in your life where Satan throws stuff at you you can't bear on your own. And if you try to bear it on your own, that first aspect of verse 2 is going to come true. If in your own strength confide, you'll lose. Because there's some things that come our way that we can't do on our own. You, you ever hear this statement? Um, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. The Bible says God will never allow you to be tempted more than you can withstand. But he never says that he won't put more on you than you can handle. As a matter of fact, 
he allows things to be put on us that we can't handle, so we'll turn to him who can handle them. That's what Scripture says. And that's what this verse is telling us. Don't focus in your own strength when these things come your way. In your, if you do that, you lose. But focus on the one man who's on our side. And that's what he says. If it weren't for the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Jesus was chosen to do for us what he did by the Father in heaven, God. And that's what this verse celebrates. It reminds the singer that Jesus Christ is the one fighting on our side, and he must win the battle. Now, that's important. Because you and I, according to what we just read in our own strength, can't win the battle. So the only one that can win the battle is the one who's on our side in Jesus. And guess what? He won. Like, if you read Scripture from start to finish and you start in Genesis, it's, it's, this, it's this, this, this battle that, that rages. Uh, you could put it in lots of different genres of literature, but it, it, it probably belongs as a romance novel. I mean, it, it, there's a relationship, and then there's a breakup, right? And then there's a promise of restoration that's going to come, that there'd be this person who's going to deliver us and bring us back into a restored relationship. And then the rest of Scripture kind of walks us through this story. Well, the, the thing is, if you start reading in Genesis, it kind of leaves you hanging in a lot of places. But if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, read the very end, by the way, if you're on Wednesday nights, you're going to see this really quickly. You know who wins because we get to read the end of the book. You see, if it wasn't for the right man who's on our side, he's the one that must win the battle, and he did. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought he had won. He's just killed the one who's there to take away his power as God of the world, to strip away his power of what he wants to do in the lives of people. He's the one that's supposed to come and render the liar and the father of lies powerless to make anything happen anymore. And he's now hanging on a cross, and he's physically dead. So how is he a threat? anymore to Satan. But three days later, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And the Word of God tells us that He rose from the dead and He conquered death and brings victory. As a matter of fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. It says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory was accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross. And verse 2 of a mighty fortress is our God is a celebration of that victory. And then the third aspect of this hymn is a celebration of Satan's end, of our foe's end. Look at verse 3. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Verse 3 is bringing the singer to celebrate that Satan's rule and dominion and authority and a power is going to be completely done away with and he will be left 
undone. Ruined. He will be undone. Now, that is a common theme through Scripture. The theme in Scripture is that they're, they're, the, though Satan is active and, and though he's seeking someone he may devour, as the Word of God would say, he has been rendered powerless over those who are in Christ. Listen to how the, John wrote this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy means to annihilate, to do away with, to completely rid, get rid of. And that's what Jesus came to do. And the writer of Hebrews said it like this in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, talking about God, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, before you and I become Christians, all we were were slaves to sin. That's all we were. We were born in sin, we were living in sin, and we had no choice but to die in sin. Because that's who we are. That's our nature. But through Jesus... God does an amazing thing for us, and that is he, he rids us of that, and we die to ourselves that he may render powerless him who had the power of death, and he strips away the chains of our slavery to sin. Paul talks about this a lot in the book of Romans, that we're no longer shackled to sin any longer. It has no more power over us. For the first time as a believer, for the first time in our lives, we have the ability, the ability to not be a slave to sin. And by the way, that ability is not our ability. It's the Spirit in us. It's His ability. You see, we have a precious gift given to us called the Holy Spirit. And living through the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to no longer be a slave to the sin that has kept us in bondage. And, and verse 3 of this great hymn is reminding the singer and teaching them that, that Satan is going to be undone, that, that we can endure his rage for his doom is sure. But notice the very last statement of that third verse. It says, one little word shall fail him. One little word. Anybody have any idea what that word is? It's not God. It's pretty close, though. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, every, everything will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. The Bible says that um, demons and the devil cannot withstand Jesus. Now, not generic Jesus. When you say, what do you mean by generic Jesus? Well, if you look in the book of Acts, there was a couple people who were going around casting demons out with the name of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. They just knew the name. And then they tried to cast the demon out of the wrong... De they, they tried to cast the demon out that was the wrong demon to mess with if you didn't know Jesus. 
And the demon spoke back and said, Jesus I know. Peter I know. I don't know you. And the Bible says that it turned and attacked those people. Basically beat them up. Because they had no power. It's not generic Jesus, it's real Jesus. It's the Jesus that lives inside a true believer. That word, that Jesus, renders Satan powerless. And so there's this idea and this celebration of Satan's ultimate end. It's accomplished in one little word, and that little word is Jesus and the work that he accomplished. And then the fourth one, the last verse, and we'll be done, is it's a celebration of our eternal end. Look at verse 4 real quick. It says, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Okay, and so the emphasis point of verse 4 comes from a very deep understanding of Scripture. Matter of fact, it, it pretty much sums up 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Let, let me read these to you real quick. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, the, the truth is, no matter what our enemy and our world brings to us, even if it be death, our eternity is secure. For God's kingdom is forever. Our eternity is forever. This verse reminds the believer to be willing to let wealth and goods go. Now, matter of fact, look, look back at that. It says, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. It's reminding us as believers that there's nothing on this earth that we can attain possession-wise or relationship-wise or even in our physical life-wise that comes close in comparison to our eternal reward that's in heaven. So it's encouraging the reader, let goods and kindreds go. If that's what Satan wants to take away from you, like he did Job, let him go. If, if it's relationships that, that Satan wants to attack and take away from you, let him go. If it's your physical life that he wants to rob and steal from you, let it go. Because it doesn't come close in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us when we get to heaven. And we as believers need to be reminded of that. Because we get so caught up in things of this world. We get so caught up in our earthly treasures and our goods and our relationships and in our health. 
By the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting good health. But if that's what Satan wants to use to attack, then let him attack. Because there's one thing, and that's what Martin Luther's bringing the reader to understand. There's one thing he can't touch. He can't touch God's kingdom. And you and I, as believers in Christ, are in that kingdom. And he can't take that. And so this, this hymn, you can see why it would become the battle cry of the Reformation. All four of those celebrations that, that are found in this verse were completely either forgotten or unknown to the common man in the 1500s. The problem is a lot of them are forgotten and unknown to the common man, the common church member in 2018. We need to change that. Martin Luther believed in verse 1 of chapter 46 of Psalms. He believed that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. He also believed, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, that what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So may we, when we worship God, not just in this song, but in our lives, may we remember the truths that it contains. May we celebrate God's sovereign power over everything. May we celebrate the victory that is offered to us in Jesus. May we celebrate that Satan has been rendered defeated. He is done. And may we celebrate our eternal reward that can't be touched by him. Why? Because God is a mighty fortress, a bulwark that never fails.